0: Welcome to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. The European Conservative exists in part to explore and do a deep dive into the various kinds of conservatisms that exist across Europe, up and down the Americas, and even into the Far East or Asia.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of What We Can't Not Talk About, the podcast of the Austin Institute for the Study of Family and Culture. I'm Dr. Mariana Orlandi, and today I want to start by saying that even though it is very unlikely, it is my hope that by the time this podcast will go on air, which usually happens in a few weeks, the war in Ukraine will be over. Miracles can happen, and if that will not be the case, I invite all those who believe to pray for a miracle now. And now with that hope and that request in my heart and with an eye on Europe and on its eastern border, I think that we made the best choice today for our guest, probably the most timely. It is, in fact, my great, great, great pleasure to be joined on uh, conversation today by Alvino Mario Fantini, I will call Mario, Editor-in-Chief of the European Conservative. Good morning, Mario.
0: Good morning, Mariana. Thank you for having me. I have to say, I think this is my first podcast ever, although I've had other interviews, never on a podcast.
1: Wow, that's well, that's our honor. I know that just by your background and the things you do and the things you have done, there will be multiple reasons to invite you on a podcast. So I might even say, you know, that this could be a first. And then, you know, our audience knows that I'm not exactly from the U.S. So (laughs) interviewing someone who is the editor in chief of the European Conservative means a lot to me. So that could be a further reason to invite you, you know, over and over and over to discuss U.S. and European similarities or relations. And I know that you travel a lot and I know that you don't live in the U.S. So where are you now?
0: Well. I'm currently in Vienna, Austria, but I like what you just said about yourself because it's a perfect lead-in to saying something about my background. I have this very Italian name, Alvino Mario Fantini, and, and of course, you can add the maternal part, Cespedes, which is a Bolivian name, and yet I was born and raised in the United States. I'm through and through an American the way I think is as an American, and yet my heart is very Latin, but people never expect this, so I just want to say that up front for you.
1: Yeah, I was about to mention that I wanted to say that notwithstanding your name, they should not think that I'm inviting my Italian friends on the show, nor should our audience think that the European conservative is run by a European, which is, I think, what makes this podcast very interesting. But you mentioned something about your ethnical background. Before we get, you know, we dive deeper into the content of our podcast. Would you like to you know, tell us a little about your education, your background?
0: Or sure, I'll say a few things about that. I mean, to be the editor and publisher of the European Conservative out of the offices in Vienna and in Budapest is almost a, the perfect thing for me. It's almost as if I had been raised to do something along these lines. And I'll explain. I, I was raised speaking Spanish at home in southern Vermont by my Bolivian mother and my Italian-American father. And my father was a sociolinguist, so he was looking at how a child develops several languages, as well as how that child might develop his or her identity. So I was raised in this very kind of cross-cultural way, intercultural way, but very rooted to the old Vermont ways in the rural parts. Well, all of Vermont is rural, of course, but in southern Vermont and raised with children of farmers and old time Vermont families. So I grew up steeped in this tradition of the Vermont tradition and a little bit more broadly, the New England tradition and that whole idea of the first 14 states and the New England families and that idea of what America could have been or should have been. If I make myself clear. And at the same time, there's this kind of international dimension raised in several languages. And my parents worked at this international school that looked at international relations and international language education. And so you might think, oh, boy, this guy's going to end up being part of the the global cosmocracy or, or some globalist. And it didn't happen. And I think the reason that didn't happen is because of my parents rootedness, rooted in their own traditions and yet also respectful of the traditions there in southern Vermont and in New England. And so then here I am as editor of this magazine and what we're trying to do. And by the way, it's not really a magazine. It's a quarterly, a beautiful quarterly publication and a very active website, and so
1: as that very, this, very let me let me pause, <laughs> let me let me interrupt you here. A very, course, very beautiful publication because I have it in my hands and I can't say it even smells great. Like uh, it's something you know with with actual pictures that you can hold in your hand and it's beautifully printed. We talk about the way of beauty very often here at yes. the institute. Absolutely, I recommend getting, but we'll get to get the copy before we get to the actual content and the journal. You were mentioning about your background. And so, you know, Okay, you don't end up doing this globalist work. You don't end (laughs) up at the UN. But what did you study?
0: Well, I will explain how I actually did end up at these multilaterals uh, for a brief period in my life. So I went to college just up the river, up the Connecticut River in Hanover, New Hampshire at Dartmouth College. And while there, I started off as an English literature major. English has always been my first love. But I ended the four years there as a religion major. And within that program, I focused on modern religious movements reacting to or dealing with modernity and the problems of modernity. So I looked at three groups in particular, a group Opus Dei, another group in Italy, Comunione Liberazione, and then the Brazilian group Tradizione Familia e Propiedagi.
1: Wow. Yeah. And it was fascinating. So, yeah, I didn't know this about you. I, and, you know, full disclosure, I knew Mario before inviting him on this podcast, of course. But this part of your story that I didn't know.
0: Fascinating. It is. And But there's one big regret associated with my studies there. I had written this dissertation on these groups and I just never sought to publish it as an article or in a monograph. And what happened a few years later, Dan Brown publishes The Da Vinci Code. And suddenly the whole world wants to know about, well, one of these groups, Opus Dei. And there I I was the authority on it, supposedly. And I just never did anything with it, uh, unfortunately.
1: We're reading with the young professional reading group that we're hosting here, the Austin Institute. We're reading Zena Hits. And at some point in the the pleasures of the the hidden pleasure of the intellectual life. And you just reminded Mm. me that at some point she's pointing out a character inside a novel. And the beauty of this character is that her knowledge is useless. She's not using her talents for any. So it's absolutely not instrumental. And then there's a whole conversation to be at there because, you know, maybe with your talents, you have a responsibility to, to use them and to use them well and to share it with the public. So we could continue probably open that. But I know I just wanted to open and close the door and say that maybe, you know, what you did there, it's even more beautiful because you didn't actually. Yeah, use well,
0: it, it was short lived, though, because afterwards came that misuse of talents, really, because what I did after Dartmouth was, a little bit of wandering and working for different groups in Latin America. And then I wound up in finance and then eventually multilateral work. I started, I'll explain how I, I fell into journalism at one point and I discovered I loved it. And through journalism, I got hired by the World Bank to work in PR and editorial and basically rewriting their bureaucratic documents. And from the World Bank, I eventually made it to the Organization of the Petroleum Exporting Countries as a speechwriter. Wow. These are like my 15 or 20 lost years because I knew the whole time I thought I was misusing my talents because my love, as I said, was literature and poetry and philosophy and art. And yet there I was in the belly of a lot of these multilaterals, waving away as an editor, as a rewriter, as a ghostwriter, as a speechwriter. So a very frustrating period for me.
1: Can we say that, however, it's a very hopeful message, the one you're giving, because I think that none of us as a life where we don't waste years. And those that think that they've all figured it out, they change their mind when they're 35 and say, you know, where did mm-hmm. I do? What did I study? So I think that the hope also for those that are listening to us, or sometimes are not exactly the youngest, is, you know, you can waste years and then you can just go back. And your first love will be, I mean, there's also something about your personal story to be said about your first love. But I, I will leave this gem for a little later on in the episode, because I think there is something about first loves there. But let's go to so you are now you did the studies, you did this multilateral work in a multilateral organization. Right now, besides being the editor in chief of this journal, you're also a member of the Philadelphia Society, of the Montpelier Society, the Institute de tut Politique in Liechtenstein, the Samuel Johnson Society of London, you're a current fellow at the Russell Kirk Center in Michigan, and also at the Abigail Adams Institute in Cambridge. So I mean right. you I think you made a very good use at least recently of your talent I'm making up um, for lost time right right and very fast but so what is the european conservative
0: great question a few years ago i would have said oh it's an occasionally published newsletter of you know 10 12 30 pages today i can happily say it's a quarterly print publication but also a vibrant dynamic daily updated website and news site It's really grown. So, this latter part, the news aspects of the current website, Europeanconservative.com, have grown in the last six months. We didn't really do news before. It really was a small journal with occasional interviews, philosophical or literary essays. But in the last six months, it's really grown. And in part, this reflects something I've always said. Or at least I've said for the last 10 years that conservatives have to stop only writing editorials and op-eds and adversarial style journalism. And we need to get back to reporting, reporting on the news. Sadly, we've abdicated news reporting to the left, I think. And that's why I'm so encouraged and, and happy to see different initiatives on the center right that are taking up the challenge of reporting on the news, of doing investigative news reporting, and I'm hoping that the European Conservative will become a, an increasingly important part of this.
1: So, okay, let's have a few deeper questions then for our listeners because their background is very often on political in political science and in government. And the question is, what is conservatism to you? Yes,
0: I think that's not a good question to ask, uh, but it certainly opens up a whole series of other questions. Uh, Let me explain. I don't think there is a programmatic position that we can take on conservatism. I don't think there is a conservatism. And in fact, the European conservative exists in part to explore and, and do a deep dive into the various kinds of conservatisms that exist across Europe, up and down the Americas, and even into the Far East or Asia. Mind you, as I think you will recall from previous conversations, I'm especially uh, interested in learning about Japanese conservatism. But to yeah, get back I to do your, remember, right? <laughs> but getting back to your the question, it always reminds me when someone asks, "Well, what is conservatism for you, Mario?" It always reminds me of Russell Kirk who was hard to classify or put into a box. I know that often people point to his six principles of conservatism, but that wasn't really something he pushed himself. In fact, the one lesson I derive from my occasional visits to the Kirk household in McCosta, Michigan, and from reading him is that we must avoid ideological thinking or ideology. And for Kirk and, and for many of us, Ideology, ideological thinking is that abstract idea that a certain program, a certain set of principles or ideas can be applied and then things will work in a particular way. That never has happened. I don't think it ever will happen. It stems from a frailty, I think, in the human intellect and and the human soul to some degree. And so to ask what is conservatism, it's really the negation of ideology. I think Kirk would have said it almost verbatim. In fact, I think I just quoted him.
1: I think I really love this definition, Mario. And I think that that's why I would call, you know, full disclosure, myself a conservative. But in the sense that conservatives do not stand necessarily for one thing or for another. But in a motto that now some of the American conservatives do not like, which is think deep, think critically, think for yourself. It's actually, I think, a very, to me, it still remains the best description of what conservative thinking is like because it's not just think for yourself but i think well and think for yourself so meaning do not accept answers that are already made do not accept propaganda question challenge as augustine i think said you know challenge everything you know question everything Mm -hmm. so i i mean if that's the definition of what conservatism is to you i think i stand on your side and i would identify that way but maybe that's just a way you know Thinking well is probably what what we're trying to say.
0: Yes, thinking well, thinking rightly or right reasoning.
1: Is there a difference though? You know, you mentioned Russell Kirk and I must confess, I read it. I read Russell Kirk last year. I had no idea who Russell Kirk was before moving to the United States. So there is certainly a big difference in the education of conservatives, if there's any such thing or movement between the U.S. and Europe. So... If you could, you know, for an audience that just takes it for granted that conservatism is more or less the same thing everywhere. How would you, if you could point out some of the main differences that you have encountered in facing the European conservatives?
0: The main differences between European conservatives and the American conservatives, I know, or across the different kinds?
1: No, I would say, I would say first, starting with America.
0: Okay. Well, I think that's, that's low-hanging fruit uh, in the sense that I think a lot of people would immediately uh, recognize what I'm about to say, that the main difference seems to be over the role of the state in the economy or the role of markets. I think the Europeans are much more ready and willing to embrace possibility of interventionist uh, tools in the economy. Uh, they're less... Let's say ideologically free market than the American conservatives I know. Now, having said that, one qualifier, this has been changing, of course, through the incredible writings and provocative arguments advanced by Sora Bamari and Gladden Papin and Adrian Vermeule and the so called neo integralists, a term that I, I don't really like to use, but I will in this case because I think most of your listeners will understand it and have heard it before. Mm-hmm. And I think they've opened up a very interesting and valuable debate. But one of the first main differences between Europe and the American conservatives is, I think, over the role of the economy and the role of the market.
1: And you mentioned the role of the state, which I think became apparent during the coronavirus pandemic. So I know for sure what is happening and what has happened in Italy and how much the state has been in charge of everything. And the fact, you know, that people were obeying the laws even when they made no sense. (laughs) Uh, something which I didn't see in the U.S. But what has been the Austrian experience, like to abstract from the COVID to what the behavior of citizens of the state can reveal about the way people perceive the role of the state? Well,
0: Austria has been quite fascinating for me and, and my wife to watch it from the inside and also from the outside. We've spent part of the lockdown, the most recent lockdown outside looking in, so to speak. I think one of the things I first noticed during the, the first part of the, the pandemic was just the willingness of most Austrians to go along and, with state measures and, and quarantines and curfews. That has changed significantly in recent months, not only in Austria, but in other European states, as you probably know. But I saw this easy adaptability on the part of the Austrian citizen to abide by, and respect anything that the state and state authorities were willing to impose or require. And that that was a bit surprising, though, if you look at history and other historical events in Austria and, and nearby, I think you will see a similar pattern of behavior on the part of the Austrians.
1: And you've recently spent three months now in the United States, so you were back here. Was the difference apparent or was it not that relevant? The difference with, between the U.S. and the, the
0: Austrians? Yes, well, What I noticed uh, during those three and a half months in the States, which basically were from October to January, was just a great deal of relaxation, of a relaxed attitude. Now, of course, this could be with the fact that we were in Florida and people tend to be quite relaxed there. But we also noticed a, a similar attitude in the Midwest, in some parts of the Midwest. And then when returning to New England and to my native Vermont, what I found was the opposite people willing to shame others into wearing their masks, and we're talking rural Vermont, too, uh, little uh, shops and grocery stores. Now, maybe you could overlap this with a map, the electoral map of the U.S., and say, well, it's obvious because the bicoastal elites in places like Vermont, dominated by Democrats and, and liberal progressives, tend to be that kind of social justice warrior. And then they admonish you for going against something. And then they're always wagging their fingers at you and telling you you're not following the rules. Well, in the Midwest, which is what the red states, a more Republican, conservative kind of voter who cherishes freedom more than other things, they adopt that more relaxed attitude. So that made perfect sense to me. I think that aligns with my lived experiences in the U.S. over the past few decades.
1: So if the divide is on that front, right, so we have a blue and red divide on on that attitude. But instead, when you were talking about Europe, that seems to be more the case that everyone, you know, including the conservatives, have a different attitude towards the state. And I I would agree that that is the case, that there is a reliance on the state governed by the left or by the right that that you don't see, I think, in the U.S. But what would you say is currently the status of, like, what is the conservative movement in Europe right now? What does that look like? Is that a young movement? Is that an educated movement? How would you describe it to an audience that has the only remote experience of it?
0: What I would say is I think we're on the cusp of beginning to see a conservative movement in other words i would say if we were compared to us experience we might be in the where we were in the late 70s maybe early 80s just before the reagan election where things were being assembled and put together think tanks and networks and institutes etc but there wasn't yet a full fledged conservative movement the way that reagan brought it all together and it coalesced i think europe is precisely just there i think we're on the verge of seeing something come together. Now, I say this because I'm involved with and and I commission writers from a variety of movements and groups and organizations across Europe. And so one of the things we do at the European Conservative is try to publish and promote the ideas of classical liberals in, say, I don't know, Belgium or, or England, but also we publish occasional libertarians here in Austria or Portugal. Also, the occasional monarchist, the occasional radical localist, the every now and then uh, some kind of frothing at the mouth, decentralist. So we try to encompass and promote all these different ideas. It hasn't quite coalesced, and not all these groups talk to each other. And actually, let me just jump back for a second. 15 years ago, when I moved to Europe, one of the first things I noticed about these different groups on the center right was that no one really talked to each other. And I found that surprising, astonishing and frustrating because certain conservatives in the same city sometimes didn't want to talk to the other conservatives, even though they had some common interests. Why didn't they want to talk to each other? Either there was personal animosity or because they weren't in full agreement on everything. Well, as you know, Mariana, having now worked and lived in the U.S., learning so much about the building of coalitions, especially through the work of ATR and other groups like that, you have to be able to find the one or two key issues around which you can work with other groups, even if those other groups don't fully share your worldview, right? You have to form these coalitions. That's beginning to happen in Europe finally, but fifteen years ago I didn't see it
1: yeah and it's probably i mean just you know to defend Europe as little as I usually do, but I mean maybe this it makes it makes some sense because you know you have all these little different states, and yeah those states are little principalities, or it's not in the mentality of Europe. Mm-hmm to just work together. I mean right. it's you know we're not the United States of Europe even though mm-hmm. bureaucracy tries to make it up that way but that's not the fact. You now we speak different languages and we have different histories and we're all proud of our own little background. So right yeah it's and, not I mean, surprising Sorry to cut you off, but remember, of course, the the classic example
0: of Tocqueville coming to America. And, and what does he remark on, among many other things? These voluntary associations and how Americans, without the state telling them what to do, gather and group together to get common things done. He was fascinated because exactly what you said. It wasn't part of the European trajectory.
1: Yeah, and I'm a big fan of Tocqueville. It's still telling the truth right now of most of our differences For the students that are listening to us, if they were interested in learning about what conservatism has been is in Europe, are there authors books that you think would offer a good description that would embody the European conservative thought?
0: Well, there are several collections of essays, collections of monographs out there, some going back to the early 60s. The work of the late Bob Schrodinger at Oxford, an American at Oxford, who passed away about two years ago. And there are many others uh, since then. There are also the classic works representing each national tradition. If I were to recommend, I think, one or two sources, (laughs) well, I would recommend the European Conservative. Because we're precisely trying to bring back a lot of these lost, forgotten, out-of-print Monographs and arguments and articles representing these different varieties and these different traditions. To date, I haven't seen the full scholarly treatment of the many varieties of European conservatism. There have been attempts, as I mentioned, but I'm still waiting to see that authoritative encyclopedia. There was actually an encyclopedia of European conservative thought by a German author, uh, the late Caspar von Schrenk. Notzing. You've got to love that name. Uh, Absolutely. We need, we need, you need <laughs> so, to write it down
1: so we can find a link to it. for our
0: Right. I, I'm happy to share that. And he wrote one of the, the best and most authoritative, I think, treatments or overviews of European conservatism. But it remains untranslated in German. That's the work for some enterprising young scholar and translator out there in your audience, perhaps. Yeah. Uh,
1: you just said something extremely relevant because I, you know, I know recently in the U.S. and among our my groups, at least, I've heard that Del Noche has been very much read and oh, studied, wow. right? Sometimes I think, well, but the only reason is that that's what got to be translated. And I am, you know, I think that probably there are so many Hungarian or Polish or Check authors that are out there and they probably have some gem in their thought and we're still not reading them because no PhD student as a candidate has decided to translate them, but there's probably a lot to learn. And, and that's why, I mean, the, the reason I wanted to talk about the European conservative is that I'm often asked by friends, you know, Can you please explain what things are like in Europe? What is the right doing in Europe? What are you know? What is is the family relevant anywhere in Europe? And I do reading your articles and the news now, also on the website. I think that that is the place to go to understand what is actually happening. I mean, even then, it is complicated. One cannot get a grasp of an entire country and entire culture by reading a news outlet, but uh, or by reading essays and book reviews. But it certainly is all that we have, because as I prepared this question for you, because I was trying to figure out how can I describe the conservative movement to Americans? And and I couldn't find an answer. The one thing that came to mind as a recent author was Sir Roger Scruton. However, I don't know if we should place Sir Roger Scruton in the American or in the European tradition.
0: Well, that's interesting, but I want to push back on something. I mean, do you think that that we can talk about a movement in Europe, a conservative movement? Or do you agree with me that we're we're still just in that pre-stage, early stage?
1: I completely agree with you to the fullest. Meaning, and that's also why I am not able to understand whether in a particular country, the work, for instance, that the Austin Institute does, promoting the family and promoting human flourishing, would be taken by right-wing or left-wing. or I don't know, because I think that histories are so different that it's very difficult to understand. And if, if I think about my own country, Italy, right-wing people are very often the most statist people mm-hmm. I've met in my life. And so there is something that is completely at odds with that personal freedom that the U.S. conservative movement stands for. And yeah, I could not, I don't think I can speak of a, a European conservative movement as a whole, but that there is, there's a bunch and, and there still needs to be an agreement of where Europe wants to go right. with, with all these ideas.
0: Well, let me just jump in again, if you don't mind. Certainly, there are vast differences in the approaches to policies and regulations that one can find on the European right. But I think there are certain things that we can identify that are key or core concepts or most important values to Everyone on the European right, and I would argue perhaps everyone on the global right, if such a thing were to exist. So let me ask you would you agree that all conservatives, regardless of tradition and trajectory and background, would prioritize the family as a core fundamental value or thing that must be protected and cherished?
1: I disagree. I agree with you only if by conservative. We define it's the reason I've I've invited you on this podcast. So as you as you probably know, we, we are not we're <laughs> no I, no. I, I invited you on this podcast because the European Conservative is not a political journal. It's right. you are conservative by the definition that we decided to use at the beginning. We just tried to think and to think for ourselves and to refuse ideology. Now, do I think that conservative self defined conservatives are always non-ideological? No. I think that a lot of the conservative movement has been ideological. And I think that in many mm-hmm. occasions, the family is not defended by conservatives. And actually, you know, it's been destroyed by conservatives that were victim maybe of the therapeutic culture, the, mm. the happiness mentality that follow your feeling mentality. So I would I agree with you if we use the term conservative just as a way to say non-ideological. Okay. Uh, and if that is the case, then absolutely, because once someone is non-ideological, we cannot realize that we are the children of our parents and we're not for our parents, we would not be here. And, you know, so th- there is yes. a way in which the family remains that fundamental unit that is the source of all our energy, the cause of most of our problems in adult mm-hmm. life, um, uh, trying, right, to recover from whatever happened when you were young. So in that sense, I think that that's, you know, when I think what you do with the European Conservative, I think you do a work that would find people that agree that the family is at the center. But
0: So what about belief in God or at least a transcendent moral order? Do you believe that all conservatives around the world would agree that there has to be a defense of or a respect for those who believe in a transcendent moral order mind you i'm not saying that all conservatives around the world necessarily have to believe in a god but they have to at least if they're atheist or agnostic they have to at least respect and defend the right of others to to believe in god or a transcendent moral order is that is that part of yeah
1: i i usually i love this thing that i'm being interviewed by you and i i I actually (laughs) adore it because it's a conversation and i really i very much like it but yes i agree i think I think that in that sense, what makes the answer to your question is believing in an order and mm-hmm. an order that is given and is not up to us to make. So an external yeah. reality would even be, you know, probably what I define more as a conservative thinking where we ourself is not what is going to shape the realities around us, but we, our role is to understand what it is that surrounds us. And so, Mm. yes, I think that that approach leads to marveling at the sun, you know, and trying to understand why do I deserve being here? Why do I deserve this life? What am I supposed to do? So I think that at least if it's not a belief or an understanding, there is at least an open question.
0: I love how you put that Mariana the marveling at the sun. For me a lot of what most matters to me in the work for the European conservative and other activities is that that sense of wonder and enchantment and awe with the world with our our being, right? Everything. It's it's incredible. And it it's just so easy to lose sight of that to to forget and then to get mired in the other stuff or the darkness or the clouds, if you know what I mean.
1: Yes, I know what you mean and and to go back to your publication I want to repeat what I said before, the way of beauty. I think that the reason I would, you know, recommend subscribing to the people that are listening to us, is just a try to, to get one of the copies in paper. It's just that there is to me, such a joy in holding something that is beautiful. It just reminded me of what I used to read 15 years ago, you know, and just Mm -hmm. having beautiful pages in front of me and a beautiful print. So, I mean, congratulations for the work that you've done there. And I really hope that we'll continue our conversation, you know, also also on the content of this journal.
0: You mentioned the beauty that you notice and in the European Conservative. and Every time people point to its beauty, I feel proud, and, and it's thanks to my team in Vienna and Budapest. But it also brings to mind something that I'm always so eager to share with others, that that sense of beauty that is part of the European Conservative is inspired by a magazine that I Discovered by chance in, in a library in Southern Vermont, of all places, in the mid-80s, when I was a teenager, the magazine was FMR, which is the acronym of the name of Franco Maria Ricci, an Italian designer, publisher, artiste, perhaps, who passed away a couple of years ago, FMR Magazine, which he, I think, launched in the mid-80s, was billed as the world's most beautiful magazine. and. It was. I have a full set that I bought on eBay in my uh, attic in Vermont. And it was a gorgeous, lush, luxurious magazine with full page spreads of photographs of famous textiles from the Middle Ages or manuscripts and statues made of ivory, gold and bronze and little articles about these pieces. It was gorgeous. I had never seen anything like it as a teenager. And As I grew up and wandered the world and did these different jobs, I thought, boy, if I could, if I had the time and the resources, that's the kind of magazine I would want to produce. So the European Conservative, is a modest attempt to kind of live that spirit.
1: Since I've made that promise, you know, I like just to share on this podcast also things that are more related to the family life of the people we interview, because we that's what we do at the Austin Institute. We stand, you know, for the family, meaning for the permanent and exclusive union of a man and a woman. And we did say something that was, I think, very positive in reminding people that there are no years that are lost and we can start our second PhD whenever we want. And I'm thinking about it. But. Also, when it comes to love, there is no such thing as wasted years. Because what I know is that there was a woman in Vermont when you were very young that is now your wife in Vienna, but there were many years in between. Is that correct?
0: That is correct. It was a long and winding road. And someday, I promise you, perhaps uh, it will be uh, a (laughs) rom-com because it's a lovely story. Uh, It's also a a bit dramatic because it's 20 years that separated us from the first date till the day I asked her to marry me. She was my high school sweetheart.
1: Yeah. But see, that's the only thing that I wanted to share with some of the girls or the men that are out there and waiting to get married. I know because I know both of you that you're very happy with this, even though you had to wait, there is no one else that you would have married. And so there is a way in which, you know, our stories will be written the way they must be written and just need to make the right step day after day. Right. And exactly. And we don't know. We don't know the long term result. And we don't know the
0: timing. I once said many years ago to my wife, oh, I regret all those years without you. And she said, But it's okay. It worked out the way it was supposed to work out because neither of us were ready at the time. Had we married when we were still dating, when she would have been in her late teens and me in my early 20s, I was a different person back then. Uh, you know, I still hadn't worked certain things out and I still hadn't learned the things that life wanted me to learn. And, you know, sometimes you learn the hard way. There are hard lessons. And I don't think I was ready for uh, this kind of relationship back then. I wasn't equipped to love in the way that this woman deserved to be loved. I would have made a horrible mess of things. And it, I think it took a long time. And all those hard lessons along the way and my constant search or quest for God to understand what he wanted of me and to understand why he made me and that all, that whole long winding process led me back to her and it had to happen that
1: way. You know, I not only I understand you completely, if you had a script, I could start reading it and say that that's exactly, you know, that the same thing is true for me. I mean, there is a reason we're friends, but yes. I wanted to go back, you know, finally to recommend again, European conservative to our audience and to follow you i will share the links with our podcast on how to follow you online or to follow, I know that you're on all social media and i'm honest i really look forward to having you here again and perhaps to you know even to giving a talk a lecture whenever you're back in austin telling us a little more about europe and about conservatism and thank you again mari
0: Maria, thank you so much for inviting me it's uh it's been a delight thank you
1: and it was for us thank you again
0: Thank you all for listening to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. Please share it with your friends. Please give us a five-star rating. And please donate so we can do even more.